Welcome to Passing Years CAM Podcast, Conversations on Aerodigestive Management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guests Carmen Bartow and Tiffany Oakes, having a conversation on treating patients with tracheostomies from acute care to home health. Welcome, everyone, to another podcast of Conversations on Aerodigestive Management. So today we're going to be speaking with Carmen Bartow and Tiffany Oakes, both speech-language pathologists who work now full-time with Passy Muir. And I'll go ahead and say that's their financial disclosure. But we're having this podcast today, Carmen and Tiffany, so that I can talk with you a little bit about your history with working with patients with tracheostomies and any advice and kind of nuggets of information that you can share with people about working with that patient population. I think it's a good way for them to kind of meet you and what you bring to the table as a clinical specialist in speech language pathology, and also to get good information on working with the patients with tracheostomies. So Carmen, I'm going to start with you and chat with you a little bit about who you are and kind of where you're from and your background. And, you know, and then we'll talk about some other things, but Carmen is, as I said, a speech language pathologist. She's board certified in swallowing and swallowing disorders and joined us a couple of years ago, I think full-time, right? Been with Passy Muir though for decades. No, <laughs> I'm kidding, Carmen. I'm not kidding. Well, I'm not kidding really, but she has been for a long chunk of her career. She has been with Passy Muir as a strong resource and consultant and offering her expertise in the area of working with patients with tracheostomies, even before she came on board full-time. So Carmen, I really want to talk to you about your background, you know, kind of where you came from, how you started working with this patient population. So do you mind just kind of starting us there? Like what got you into working with patients with tracheostomies? Okay, sure, sure. Um, So my CFY, say my clinical fellowship year, I was fortunate enough to get a position at Vanderbilt Medical Center. And so you're right, Kristen, that was decades ago. (laughs) Um, And I immediately loved working with patients with tracheostomy tubes, mechanical ventilation, You know, as an acute care SLP, we get a lot of different uh, opportunities and experiences and challenges. And I just felt like working with a patient with a trach and getting to place a passing mirror valve and getting to do swallowing assessments made sense to me. Um, It was also very rewarding to take a patient maybe who had not been able to communicate for a while. Maybe they had been orally intubated and then they had a trach and they were on the vent and we were able to go in and restore communication and do swallowing assessments. And I felt like we could just, you know, really make a big difference in their life, have a positive impact. And so I loved it from the very beginning. And that was quite a long time ago. And then over the you know next 20 plus years, this just became my favorite area of speech pathology. I got to be an educational consultant for Passimir for many years. I got to work in ICUs uh, very closely with many respiratory therapists, placing valves in line with the vent, doing fees, a lot of fees on our patients with trachs and mechanical ventilation. I got to 
be part of starting a tracheostomy team at a big level one trauma center. And that was both challenging and frustrating, but also pretty cool and fun and rewarding. So that's just, I guess, a little bit about kind of my, my history of getting started to uh, where I am now with, uh, as a clinical specialist with Passimir as of two years, a little over two, two years ago. One thing I will share, you mentioned Vanderbilt Medical Center. You're in Tennessee. Yes, Nashville. So you come to us, you know, and stay in that area because you work remotely. Um, so I just wanted to share that little bit that you are able to work remotely in the current position and you do a lot of online teaching, uh, mm -hmm. now, but I want to stay back in time just a little bit. Do you mind sharing? You said you got to start with patients with tracheostomies pretty much right in the beginning in your CFY. Mm -hmm. What kind of competencies did you have to do in order to work with that patient population? Was there a set process that you had to go through or, you know, what, what was the process for getting started? Yeah, so that's a great question because I think it's different for everyone and so, you know, some people will ask about competencies for, do you have to have a competency for cuff deflation and inflation as a speech pathologist? And so where I worked at Vanderbilt, and then I also worked at an LTAC with the same patient population, we didn't have to have any kind of written competency, but we did have a mentor so I learned from other speech pathologists who also really enjoyed this patient population and taught me how to inflate cuffs, how to deflate cuffs, how to do an assessment. Um, and then later we did add suctioning as part of our training. And for that, we did have to have some competency training. We had didactic training from respiratory, and then we also had bedside training, and then we had to do checkoffs. Uh, so that was kind of, I, I think, part of the whole assessment, treatment, intervention with that patient population. So that was kind of how it started at the beginning. When I left Vanderbilt a couple of years ago, our, our department had really grown. We had close to 10 SLPs but we only had a few of us that were really trained in working with our patients with trachs and mechanical ventilation. And so we actually did develop some competency training at that time, just to kind of get everybody on board. You know, our feeling was that if we got a consult and if it was for a patient with aphasia, if it was a patient for a brain injury, if it was a patient for a passing and swallowing assessment in the ICU on a patient with a trach and mechanical ventilation, then any and anyone in our department should really have the training, the competency, the ability to take any of those referrals. So um, that, that did kind of change over time as our department grew, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I will yeah. add, from a competency standpoint, like you mentioned, it's different in different facilities mm -hmm. and it can be different facility, facilities, state to state, you know, so people have to be aware of depending on where you're located, you know, what is required in that area. Um, I even worked, I was in two level one trauma centers and I had competencies in the first uh, hospital for suctioning. And of course, we're going to trait patients using speaking valves. And in the other hospital, we had competencies for using the valve, but not for suctioning. We were not allowed to suction patients, mm. so even though it was same state. 
you know, that it was a little different on what skill sets we were able to use. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were able to, and I love the, the fact that you kind of got in on the ground floor with some of the trach stuff mm-hmm. because you were able to, you were there to help develop the tracheostomy team and the way you were going to kind of manage the care of those patients. Can you share a little bit about what it takes to get a team started? Sure, I can. I'm happy to do that. Um, It takes persistence. That's one thing for sure. Uh, We, when, when we really started looking at this at Vanderbilt and our, we had maybe 850 to 900 beds, uh, level one trauma centers. We had, it was a big hospital and I had been researching trait teams and I kept seeing that these, these successful trait teams with great patient outcomes were often from rehab centers or maybe smaller hospitals. And so I'm like, is this really something that we can do here? Uh, but we kept at it. We kept at it. And, you know, eventually we, you know, we had this very successful trait team, but I will say it takes persistence. Uh, it takes definitely teamwork, getting some allies who have the same goals as you do to improve the care of patients with tracheostomy tubes. Um, it requires diligence and, you know, you're, you have to be willing to put some extra time into developing new documentation to really standardize practice. Uh, it for us, I will share. It took us a couple of years to get our team up and running, and I know that sounds like a really long time, and it was. It felt like a really long time, um, and we had some stops and starts. We had some changes in in personnel throughout that process, um, but I would just say uh, it is well worth it. So much research about improved patient outcomes when you have a dedicated multidisciplinary team caring for those patients. So well worth it. Uh, stay persistent. And, you know, we've got webinars and articles and research and we have so much that we could share. So if anybody listens to this podcast and, you know, wants more information, we certainly have have a lot of uh, information that we can share and, and more tips on how to get a team started. In thinking about starting a team, who would you say are the core members to like aim for trying to get in the beginning to kind of get your team started? Uh, Well, of course, since I am a speech pathologist, I will say, of course, a speech pathologist, Uh, but I also say respiratory therapy. You know, I think that we are are the ancillary service providers that often have the most expertise in tracheostomy and the whole air digestive system. So I think we're key for sure. Um, if you're in acute care, I really, and, and if you're going to be responsible for the tracheotomy all the way through to decannulation, you really need a physician or a surgeon on board to back you, to offer that support. For us, we needed that surgeon to push this whole trait team idea through to administration and get approval. Uh, I think if you're in rehab or in, you know, an LTAC or a skilled nursing facility, you may not have to have a physician, but for us, that really, that really helped get buy-in from administration. I think a nurse can be really helpful, maybe a nurse practitioner in some, in some facilities, 
And, um, you know, those were the people that were on the team that I was part of. In some facilities, there's a dietitian, there may be an OT and a PT. But I guess going back to your question, core members, SLP, RT, um, and a physician, if, if that is appropriate for your facility. I think it just helps as people look and start planning, you know, for have a team, like, who am I going to go after? And I, you know, and you mentioned it early on, but having that champion, you know, finding that person to help with that persistence, to help kind of push it through and get it through. Cause you typically have to take it through to administration, you know, to get everything kind of signed off on and in place and have it an official team yeah, that, for that sure. has some clout and and, and having people with a spirit of teamwork and, and, you know, not having that idea that, you know, it's my way or the highway that really helps too. Um, for us, we had a, we had two physicians on our team. We had an ENT and a trauma surgeon because they were the two services that performed tracheotomies prior to the trach team. And, you know, I think you don't want to alienate one service. So, you know, getting, getting buy-in and, and people that have kind of a stake in tracheotomy and tracheostomy care is important, but then also finding nice people who, you know, who are not going to just say, no, this is the way we've always done it. You know, we always put size eight cuffed tracheostomy tubes in everyone, and we're not going to change that practice. You know, you have to get people that are, would say like, okay, I'm going to have an open mind. We're going to go into this. We're going to, you know, take both external internal evidence and, you know, to learn from each other and even be willing to, you know, listen to all, all providers, you know, not just, again, this is the way we've always done it. You have to be open-minded and realize that practice needs to evolve and change and stay up to date with current guidelines. So get some nice people on the team too. (laughs) (laughs) I would agree with that. You definitely want people you can work with. Yeah, Um, for sure. So I'm going to put you on the spot for a minute. Okay. And this, if you only had one piece of advice that you could give about working in acute care or working with patients with tracheostomies, kind of in that realm of practice for speech pathologists, what would be your one piece of advice? My one piece of advice, if you want to learn more in acute care, would be to find a respiratory therapist that is willing to allow you to shadow them, to answer your gazillion questions, to teach you about mechanical ventilation, develop some good teamwork and rapport. I think that would would be my number one piece of advice. I think I did that early on. I drove this RT named Chris. Um, Probably I drove him crazy, but I was a very young clinician and wanted to learn. I'm still learning. Um, but I would follow him around, ask him questions all the time. And he only rolled his eyes a few times at me, but was just willing to help me and teach me and work with me. And then I think it's also, so not only does that, did that help me learn more? And I think that can help speech pathologists learn more, but if you can develop that rapport and, and teamwork with RT, your whole, you know, your whole program is going to be more success, successful because they're often the ones that are on the in the front line, they get the consults before we do sometimes. And so they can be out there advocating. I didn't know what direction you would go. 
I think that was a great piece of advice. I was okay. like, oh, wow, that's so good. Oh, I was good. Thanks. I was like, hmm, what would I say? I think I do. I think that's it. Okay. No, yeah. that's a good, that's a really good one. And, um, and I want to thank you for your time. Sure. I know. Um, I think that gives actually some really nice first steps. And like you said, people can seek more information on team and acute care and all if they'd like. Uh, but I appreciate your time and hopefully people now know a little bit more about you and kind of your experience and some of your experience, because you've done a lot in swallowing and all too. And we didn't even get to that. You've done a lot with swallowing and swallowing disorders and fees and modifieds. And that's a whole other area we could talk about another time. Yeah, we can, we can do that another time. Yeah, we'll do that another time, but okay. I'm going to shift and chat with Tiffany for a little bit. She worked in a different setting. So I'm going to, um, well, she also worked in acute care, but we're going to focus on her experience with home health and kind of talk about some of the differences she ran into there. But thank you, Carmen, for your All time. All right. Thank you. Well, as everyone hopefully got a chance and heard some with what Carmen was able to share with us about her experience in acute care. And, and I mentioned now we're shifting over. I'm going to talk with Tiffany. Um, so welcome, Tiffany. I'm going to be talking with Tiffany Oaks, a speech language pathologist who ironically is also located in Tennessee, um, but working remotely with us. But Tiffany also comes to us with a number of years of experience working in both acute care and later in home health. And home health, I hate to say, is sometimes the forgotten area. We don't do enough education that's specific to home health. And, and I say us, I'll, I'll say that kind of the royal we of Passimir and our educational development but I know people miss out. They want more on home health. And so, Tiffany, I thought maybe we could chat about that a little bit. But first, I want to introduce you because you've come on board with Passy Mirror. You were with us part time and did quite a bit of work with us in a part time role. And then you came on full time with us. And it's now been you're also right at two years full time, right? Yes. Right. And that's all. That's what I was saying. I was like, I think we're like right on the two year mark. But uh, Tiffany's been on with us two years full-time. That's her financial disclosure also as a clinical specialist in speech-language pathology coming to us with experience working with patients with tracheostomy, uh, both in the acute care setting, as I mentioned, and in home health. And we've had an opportunity in the past to talk about the home health and some of the things that you ran into that were a little bit different. But before, that's a teaser, because before we get to that, um, can you share a little bit about just your general experiences, like where you did your CF? When did you start seeing trach patients? Like how did you get involved with that patient population? So I started with my CF and an acute care. I started acute care, started um, very small, rural, community-based acute care. It was actually part of my graduate program to work with them as I graduated. It was the plan all along with that community-based hospital because they needed good SLPs. They needed good medically-based SLPs in the area. So that was part of the agreement. And I went back to work with them. And there was a respiratory therapist there who was just itching to get a speech pathologist who was willing to work with patients with trachs because typically they all got referred out to the larger hospitals. But occasionally in that small community, there were head and neck cancers. There were patients who had been intubated and mechanically ventilated that were coming home and they were coming back to the hospital for other things that they needed that had the trach still. And they were looking for an SLP who could work with them with a valve and work with them for other things that they needed for communication and swallowing. So that's kind of how I got started. 
as a respiratory therapist, really looking for, yes, now we have this new SLP. I'm going to go ahead and work with her and get her exactly where I need her to work with these trach patients. So we did start to be able to accept more patients who had that kind of need, tracheostomies, and then worked in a different kind of acute care, still carrying that with me in that facility. They worked with patients with vents, but I didn't stay acute care for too long. And all throughout that, even PRN, I was doing home health, loved home health. It's kind of where my heart lied all along. So I was PRN from the very beginning, even while I was in acute care full-time. And then that kind of transitioned into a full-time position where I was for several years. I will say there's a theme and consist that is consistent with what Carmen was talking about when you mentioned the respiratory therapist was itching to get the speech language pathologist and Carmen ended her piece of advice was find that respiratory therapist. So the respiratory therapist found you. Um, so that's good. And, and it just emphasizes that team approach um, that's needed when we're working with the patients with tracheostomy. But your love lied with home health. So you moved and kind of worked in, you went into home health full time. When you were in that setting, did you still get to see patients with tracheostomies and ventilators? I did. And to begin with, it wasn't very much. I feel like the trend to send patients home who were maybe um, requiring a different level of acuity, a little bit more care, that started progressing as I was in home health. To begin with, I was you were seeing more the rehabilitation patients, the patients who just wanted to go home, because we all hear that, I want to go home, I want to go home. So being in that environment with them helped them participate in that therapy. But I didn't start seeing that until I was able to really work with some of the referring physicians and saying, look, this is what I can do, because they weren't used to somebody in home environments being able to work with patients with tracheostomies. So they were sending them to skilled nursing facilities and long-term care facilities, even when the patient wanted to go home because they didn't think that patient could receive that level of care. So there was some education, some in-servicing that would happen as part of the company that I was working for in communicating with referring physicians and hospitals that this was a service that we could provide, that we did have somebody who could demonstrate competency and work with these patients with tracheostomies and provide some benefit even in the home environment. So the longer I worked in home health, the more trachs I got. And that in, the same kind of thing happened with patients with mechanical ventilation. Occasionally one would be there, and this was usually a patient who was progressive. They had the trach, then as they were progressing, they required mechanical ventilation. And that gave me an opportunity to progress with that patient and still demonstrate to the referring physicians in the hospitals that that was something we could handle. So you saw that increasing patient population. Was there anything contributing to that other than just being able to provide more care? Or, or was there a trend towards patients being discharged sooner from the hospitals? Or do you know what was causing that kind of influx? To begin with, I think it was just awareness that this could be handled at home and me working well with my account executives and marketing to make sure that physicians and hospitals and other speech pathologists at those facilities and the discharge teams were aware that this was a service that could be provided. But as I worked and I, I didn't leave the road until after COVID started, and we definitely started seeing that with COVID, that patients were being discharged from facilities, maybe a little bit sicker, maybe a little bit more quickly to try to help with that turnover, the need for beds for patients who are really very sick. And we started seeing a lot of trachs start coming home at that. So I was still on the road when we started seeing that transition, but patients who want to go home, the research started coming out, the patients did better at home if they could receive that level of care. 
So that started happening a little bit more frequently before I came on full-time with passing year. Well, I know one of the biggest differences with home health is you don't have a respiratory therapist or a nurse or, or the physician somewhere in the facility you know, to call and have come if needed. So how is that in managing the care? Cause we, you know, we t- think about the team approach, have an RT with us at the bedside. So what, what did you have to do a little differently in home health? It is hard and it can be scarier for some clinicians who perhaps didn't have the acute background that I had and some of the training and the competency that I had bringing it into that environment because you don't have anybody to help you. You don't have anybody to hold your hand. You don't have anybody to walk down the hall and grab and get a little bit of help or anything like that. So it can be a little bit scarier. So communication across the board is key. So boy, is it a good thing that we're supposed to be experts in it. So really talking with the different disciplines on the phone, coordinating times of care in a patient's home is going to be really important and just working with different disciplines across the board like that, because we're not in the home at the same time. And a lot of times for billing, we can't be in the home at the same time. And a lot of home health companies don't have their own respiratory. So we're having to rely on a completely different company to coordinate care with and that timing of care. And we also have to rely for respiratory, speaking as a speech pathologist, that that respiratory DME has hands-on clinicians because sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're more of a drop and go kind of DME. So we have to really advocate for our patients to have respiratory hands-on clinicians working with them so that we can work with those clinicians as well. So it's communication with discharge teams at the facilities, talking with the speech pathologists that are gonna be releasing these patients to us so that we know what this patient needs and that we're setting this patient up for success with all of the disciplines that they need in the home communicating with those disciplines as a speech pathologist. We kind of uh, lead that team unintentionally, I think, coordinating that communication between primary physicians and the specialists, the ENT or the pulmonologist, whoever is following that patient for their trach needs, respiratory from the other company to see if we can't get them in the house at the same time to do an evaluation for, say, valve use or do any kind of suctioning for this patient or training for the caregivers of this patient. And then also working with PT and OT over here who didn't understand the benefits of maybe valve use for their patients. So we're doing training there so that they continue to use the valve for those patients when they're in the home, working with nursing as well, who's working with maybe the stoma care, the wound care, the valve use, the suctioning for those patients, all of the things that nursing does to take care of the patient. But if we didn't all know what each other was doing, sometimes something would fall between the cracks. And I found that because we're so good at communicating, that speech pathology really had to work well with those other disciplines, even those not in the same company. You're mentioning the importance of the communication. What are some hints you could give to help improve that communication, you know, to help find the RT or to be in touch with them or the nurse or the physician, whoever it is? What's, what were, did you learn any come up with any kind of tricks or any ways to, you know, improve that communication or to get answers faster? I learned we have to have a communication folder in the home that we sign in on, that we put patient data in, and respiratory DME companies have the same thing. So even if the patient didn't know, I learned to look on their refrigerator for the magnet with the phone number, or I learned to try to find that communication folder from the respiratory DME to find out who their respiratory therapist was so that I can call and go ahead and make that connection because I didn't want to just try to pass information along from the patient. It's a game of telephone if you do that, and who knows if they got the right message. So I didn't want to do anything like that, and that helped with that a little bit, but really talking with the discharging facilities, the referral sources for these patients helped a lot 
because I got them to understand a little bit more about what that need was going to be like when that patient got home and they were able to help me coordinate that before the patient even got there. So making sure that they understood what pieces of information we needed, what documentation we needed, as well as setting up the right resources for the patient. Working with those facilities was probably my biggest help in starting with good communication. Did you uh, have an opportunity to, I mean, how frequently, and you may maybe by percentage of time, or if you have an idea for numbers, but how often could you actually have an RT with you at the time that you were evaluating the patient? I, that's not very frequently. I wish it was more. So I only really pushed for that at the exact same time that I was there for a patient on the vent. Because if a patient was on the vent and I was trying to do a valve assessment, we have to have respiratory there for that. That's absolutely best practice and speech cannot manage that vent, not even in the home setting when nobody else seems to be there to do it. So that was the only time I really pushed the issue. But there were several times lots of respiratory was working on working on you know, telehealth and things like that as well. So sometimes I could coordinate a telehealth visit with respiratory with the family while I was there so that we could be working together with this patient where it was sometimes I talk to the respiratory therapist after I leave. This is what I noticed this time. This may be for patients that were just a trach collar or spontaneously breathing patients. Something changed next time you're out. Can you look at this? And then they would call me back the next day that said, okay, I did look at this. This is what we're going to do. And it wasn't always at the same time. I only really pushed for that for patients on the vent for that assessment and those consecutive visits until the, the family or the caregivers were able to manage that vent. I mean, that makes sense. And as you mentioned, the team approach, needing the RT there to help manage that ventilator and make sure the patient's being ventilated, you know, fully when you're doing the assessment. So thank you for that. Um, one other last bit, if you, cause I did the, I did this with Carmen, if you could give one piece of advice for working with this patient population to speech language pathologist, what would your piece of advice be? It is doable. Don't be scared by it, but get your competencies. So do your good continuing education. See if you can't, even in the home environment, you may be able to shadow other disciplines at an acute care facility to do the hands-on training. Sometimes that is available. I did that some as well. That's how I got trained in like a minimal leak technique. I worked with some departments in the local hospital. So if you can do something like that, developing your hand-on hands-on competency and that that comfortability. So be competent. You can do it if you are competent, but if you are not, learn to say no. That would be a piece of advice that I have. Please don't put your patients at risk. Our, our companies, our home health companies want that certain um, number of monthly referrals. And don't let that be something that you are trying to to get by with when you know that you can't competently care for this patient. It's our responsibility to refer that to another company that can. Well, I think that is a really, really important piece of advice. Thank you. In linking the two of your talks, talking with both of you, kind of linking it together, I was sitting here thinking about it and I think it's a nice transition, but I think the consistent theme, because basically overall the care didn't change, the need for a team didn't change, the roles that the different disciplines can bring to the, to the picture if uh, needed did not change. It's just the environment. And as you said, the home environment can be more difficult because you don't have ready access to things, but it's still doable. I think that's real important. Well, thank you so much. Um, thanks for your time, hopefully. 
also people now have had an opportunity. I know a lot of people have heard you teaching, but now they have an opportunity to know a little bit more about your background. Um, I know we focused on tracheostomies and you also have experience in other areas. And we also may chat about that again at another time, but, uh, but I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks for talking with me and joining in on the podcast. And thanks everyone for listening in. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.